Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews, be sure to check out our website, scriptsandscribes.com. This is our last podcast of 2015, and before we get started, I want to wish all of you a happy holidays and happy New Year's. On the show today, I'm really excited to have on an exceptionally talented and prolific writer of film and television with TV credits that include Lost, Alias, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and feature films such as World War Z, The Cabin in the Woods, and Cloverfield. He was the first showrunner of Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix, and his latest film, directed by the legendary Ridley Scott, is The Martian, starring Matt Damon. Uh, the Martian is nearing $600 million worldwide at the box office and received a ton of critical acclaim, including, according to IMDb at least, uh, receiving 21 award nominations with eight wins so far, and we're still only in the middle of award season. Welcome, Mr. Drew Goddard. Thank you for coming on, Drew. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Congratulations on all the accolades you've received with The Martian. It's very well deserved. I did see the film, and I thought it was really fantastic. And, and for those of you who haven't seen it yet, you most definitely should. Um, maybe you can tell the audience a little bit of what is The Martian about if they haven't seen it yet. Um, you know, it's it's a basic story about um, an astronaut who gets trapped by himself on Mars. Um, Matt Damon plays Mark Watney, and, um, and who gets who falls into some misfortune at the beginning of the movie and uh, gets left behind on a planet. And the the movie is about the quest uh, for us for the world to save him and for him to save himself. Right. Um, I kind of thought it felt. Sort of like Apollo 13 meets Castaway, but sort of on adrenaline, because it was much more sort of action-oriented and had a lot more humor, minus Tom Hanks, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, but those, look, we lo- I love both those movies, so I will, never, I will never argue with any comparisons to either of those. <laughs> Um, before we jump into The Martian, we do like to start off the podcast sort of learning a little bit about you as a writer first. I know you're from Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, and the son of a doctor and a teacher, if I'm not incorrect. Um, how did you discover your passion for storytelling, and how did you end up sort of working in the industry? It all started with reading. I mean, I, I, I remember being obsessed with books, you know, from, from that's my earliest memory. Um, is reading and there, you know, there wasn't a lot to do in New Mexico when <laughs> I was growing up. So I would, <laughs> I would sort of devour everything I could get my hands on and, uh, just ha- hang out in the library all the time. Um, and, and so it started there. And then, um, in, in college, I sort of discovered that screenwriting could be a job. I, I sort of thought I was going to be a novelist oh. just because I didn't understand. I, I didn't, it sounds naive, but I didn't understand. These, what these jobs could be. Mm-hmm. And then I got to college and I learned about screenwriting and thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I could try that. Uh, and drove out to Los Angeles and just and struggled to find work for, you know, t- took the first production assistant jobs I could find. Right. Uh, and did that for about five years before I got hired at Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, that's great. I mean, did you get hired off a spec that you wrote for Buffy? I did. I wrote a pilot and a, uh, a spec six feet under. And okay. the, the two, those two things uh, piqued Marty Noxon's attention, uh, and she great. sort of got, uh, got, got me in the door. That's great. Now, The Martian. Uh, your screenplay was adapted from the novel by Andy Weir, which I haven't read yet, but I did see the film. How did you discover the book, and what made you sort of believe it would make for a great film? What was it about the source material that really stood out to you initially? Yeah, I was sent. I was sent uh, the book, but this was before it was a book. It was um, an ebook, I suppose. Um, right, I heard about that. And Andy Ware had been publishing it chapter by chapter, uh, a chapter a month over the course of like three years, um, uh, and he and just giving it away for free. And a friend of mine, Aditya Sood, uh, who's a producer on the movie, found it 
and said, you should look at this. It's, it's special. And I didn't really even understand what an ebook was at the time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And so, but I said, okay, sure. Send it to me. And I, I read it and uh, fell in love with it very quickly. And so uh, it it really became a question of how are we ever going to convince a studio to let us make this thing Mm -hmm. Um, much more than can, can this be great? Because I really believed in the book right away. Right. And I've read some interesting stories that talk about the timeline of The Martian and how it sort of intersected with Gravity and Interstellar, two obviously other big astronaut films. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process you encountered in getting The Martian made? Yeah, I mean, look, getting any movie made these days is, is challenging, particularly original movies. And, and, and The Martian is based on a book. But at the time, it's not like the book was a bestseller. People, it hadn't even come out yet. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to convince a studio to, to make a, a very large bet on an unknown property, which is just not what studios are doing these <laughs> right. days, for, for expensive movies at least. And right. we knew that there wasn't really a cheap version of The Martian that we could make. Like mm-hmm. We just didn't know. At the end of the day, they're spaceships, and spaceships are expensive. Right. So, um, so we needed all the help we could get. And the main thing was... First, I just had to put my head down and get a screenplay done uh, so that we could try to attract talent and, and get, get a good cast. Because we knew, I sort of knew that this movie had good parts in it. And one of the things you sort of learn in screenwriting is if you can, get, if you can attract actors, it's going to make your life a whole lot easier. Right. And the thing I liked about what Andy's book was that even the supporting cast, even the smallest roles in the supporting cast, everyone had a, had a moment. And... That's the sort of thing that, can, that, that actors are looking for. They're looking for people to, to write them good roles. And so I, I, one of the pitches I made to the studio as to why they should do this was that, I, you know, let me get a screenplay done and, and let's start sending it to actors. I bet we can, we can get them to do this. That, that was the hope. And so while I was writing it, though, you know, we kept getting wind that there was this other space movie, that Sandra Bullock was doing a space movie. And I never really worried about those things because – you know, if 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 you hear that there's another space movie and you stop writing your space movie, you're never going to get anything done because there's always something like your movie out there all the time on whatever you're working on. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's always in the back of your head. And and uh, and then I turned in the first draft of the script the day Gravity came out, and <laughs> we were all I was I was, I was just nervous because you know if it, if there's too much overlap, it can kill your movie. Right. And and also creatively, you don't want to put the movie out there. If someone's already done it, it's like, well, I, let's not do this. Um, <laughs> but, but then we saw Gravity, and I loved Gravity. I loved it. Um, but I was also, I also thought, oh, it's different. You know, it's just a different movie. We have very different tones. Very. Um, and and it was, and and then, it, but it connected. You know, Gravity did well, which I think I, I'd have, we'd have to ask the studio, and I'm not sure they would ever admit this, but I have a feeling Gravity's success made the studio feel more calm. Sure. With with with. Uh, with selling a selling a big budget space movie to to a mass audience, I think it probably calmed them down. And then the same thing happened with Interstellar. I think a, a year after that, Interstellar came out on the same day that we started shooting, and we went through the same process <laughs> where we went, "Uh oh, we should probably see it and see." And and then we watched it. And I, again, I loved that movie, but we we just felt comfortable that we were different and that we weren't just just repeating. Um, uh, that movie. We just felt like we, we could be our own thing. Right. Absolutely. Now, two things that are frequently brought up when talking about uh, the film are the amount of humor that's instilled in the story and how accurate the science is. 
Uh, first off, I just want to talk about um, how much humor and levity you added to it, um, to what is essentially a, a very challenging, at some points, almost grim life-and-death situation. Um, was it ever a challenge trying to balance that seriousness of, of the story with that those sort of humorous, lighter moments uh, and avoid going too far? Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. It's, it's always a challenge. It's been a challenge on everything I've done is to find that right tone. Because I, I tend to, I tend to like projects that can sort of straddle that line between uh, drama and comedy. I, it, it, I think it's just a personal preference. It's why I think uh, it's why I wanted to work on Buffy the Vampire Slayer more than anything when I was when I was a kid, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, Josh really always found that balance. Because um, the danger is always if you veer into comedy, the drama gets undercut too much. Um, and, and you, you can veer into, into spoof, um, or farce and, and that's, you know, dangerous. However, you know, it's all about finding that right tone. And the hard part is it's your gut, you know, you have to just, there's no, there's no correct instruction manual. (laughs) There's no, um, there's no, there's no Sid Field book on tone (laughs) or if there is, I don't know about it, but, um, uh, you're, you're just sort of trying to find that balance. And so the humor was in the book. For sure, and it's one of the things that attracted me to it. And then, but with the movie, you have to sort of find where where is the humor appropriate, and also what type of humor is appropriate. You know, mm-hmm. like that's the part yeah. that I think I, I worked really hard on because because you have to find economy in your humor. And to me, the the type of humor was crucial. It's not just that there are jokes; sure. it's that the humor is serving a function for the character yeah. and and the people on the ground. You know, they're dealing with such um, uh, despair in the movie that the humor serves a purpose for them. And I, I, we kept saying like, as long as we understand that, as long as we understand this isn't just a bunch of jokes, mm-hmm. this is, there's a reason for this humor. We'll be fine. And Ridley got that and, and sort of held, held that, towed that line expertly throughout. Yeah, no, I thought it was fantastic the way it was done. Um, and even to the point where, uh, like I don't remember the name of the character. He was the uh, the engineer who was developing the uh, uh, calculations for the slingshot maneuver thing. Yes. When he he spills the coffee and then at the end of the scene he gets up and he slips, literally falls on the floor, gets up again. Look, moments yeah. like that um, just adds so much, and yet it's such a little thing, but it adds so much to that scene and just the you know those moments throughout the film add such a great you know aspect to it. And that's one of those things where it's not like I wrote you know, Rich Purnell falls down. <laughs> that just happened. Donald Glover just actually slipped, but he didn't break character. And then Ridley liked it and it stayed in the movie. And, and that's what's fun about making a movie is that you discover things. And it's a very human moment where right. Donald just slips and, uh, and Ridley liked it. So, so suddenly, suddenly it stays in the movie. Yeah. And even I'm assuming it wasn't in the, the novel, but I could be wrong. The um, project Elrond, uh, and having Sean Bean in the room when that comes out, the Lord of the Rings reference comes in. Was that intentional? I'm assuming it was. I'm assuming <laughs> no, look, a... it's in the novel. 100%, Is it really? And I loved it in the novel. Wow. And that's just a happy accident. I think I added the Glorfindel joke. <laughs> right, but, right. But, um, but uh, no, that was in there, and it delighted me in the novel. And then, and we did, and we didn't cast Sean Bean with that in mind. We just loved Sean Bean. Oh, sure, absolutely. And, and it just, it just happened. And and honestly, we thought, well, do we, should we cut this? Are we getting too cute? You know, I'm, I, I never want to get too right. too clever. 
but it just worked. I don't know. Like sometimes you just tonally, I think part of it is the way Ridley shot it and the way Sean played it. They, right. It never feels like we're winking. Not at all. You know, it just, he just does it and, and it works. And I, I don't know, every time I watch that part yeah. with an audience, you can hear a couple guys uh, start laughing. They're ahead of the joke yeah. and it delights me. Yeah. No, it was fantastic. Uh, now, touching base on the science of it, the film is very scientific. Lots of big words, complex ideas, everything from botany to physics to, you know, everything. And I love it when a film like this, when the science feels real, and in this case, for the most part, it is real from what I understand, but it doesn't bog the audience down with too much exposition, you know, explaining everything. So I think you did a great job with that, which I'm sure was a huge challenge since the story is so heavily uh, reliant on science and technology, because that's basically, you know, the, the means for him to, Matt Damon to come home. Um, in one film, in, in the film, excuse me, one of Matt Damon's lines is, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. Uh, was that what you said to yourself when you started writing the screenplay? Um, and how comfortable you, were you with the science aspect of writing in general, but especially with this, before you started the writing process? I, well, it was certainly one of the things that attracted me in the book. I mean, Andy... Andy is a genius, and and the book very much is, you know, if, if you think we go into detail in the movie, the book is, is hyper-meticulous right. with the science. And, and you know, I loved that when I read it, and but I also knew that was going to be the great challenge of the movie. I, I said it right away to the studio. I said, listen, you need to understand what this is because you can't come to me after the third draft of this script and say strip out all the science because right. then we don't have anything. Like we have to, I can't dumb this movie down because mm-hmm. then this movie gets really boring because it's not like I have, you know, actual Martians uh, <laughs> right. there to fight. Like we don't, like we don't have anything. Right. If, if we don't, you know, embrace what this movie is, the science of it, mm-hmm. I don't think we have anything, you know, like then it's, it's a very sort of basic structure. Right. The studio got it, but the truth is none of us really were a hundred percent positive it was going to work until we saw it for the first time with an audience. Even I, was nervous about it. You know, I was mm. nervous. I didn't, I didn't say I was nervous because you, you sort of have to bullshit your way through <laughs> this and say, and say, um, and say, no, it's going to work. But until I watched it with the first test audience and, and afterwards they said, no, the thing we love most about it is the science. I thought I was frankly blown away by that. And I looked at Ridley and I said, oh, we're going to be fine. Cause mm-hmm. if that, if they're buying that, then we, we're not going to have any problems with, Right. Everything else is just sort of bonus time. Um, and I think, I, you know, part of it was the approach. I think what we did, I sort of said, listen, you, it's okay to not understand. I had to sort of make the studio comfortable and say, listen, you, you may never understand what he's doing with hydrazine, you right, know? Right. But what you will understand is he needs water to grow potatoes. You will understand he's hungry, you know? Mm-hmm. You will understand he's breathing too much uh, he's exhaling too much oxygen and he has to figure out how to regulate his air. Mm. Like these are basic survival uh, benchmarks. And as long as, as long as you feel like he's not just doing a bunch of science experiments, he's struggling to survive. And, and, and we were very careful about holding that line, like the, making sure that the emotional side of the science connected with the audience so that everyone feels comfortable about when you're, when you're talking about, you know, decaying radioactive isotopes, Right. Um, you you sort of get it because you know that he's cold, right? right so right. all you need to know is he's trying to figure out how to stay warm, and and that balance I think is what got us 
allowed us to get so dense in the science. Right. Now, in my research, I found that the the only sort of major sort of issue that scientists seem to have with the the film, the script, the book was the storms on Mars. And they're saying they're not right. that big. Um, uh, obviously, things have to be embellished for uh, uh, dramatic purposes for uh, the narrative. Um, but were there ever any times when someone suggested something or maybe from the source material or whatever, perhaps an element or a scene that really broke the scientific rules? And how did you sort of get that to work or how did that conversation go? How, how did that turn out? Yeah, I mean, we sort of knew, look, we may make mistakes. The, the, the point of the movie is not we have to be 100% scientifically accurate. The point of the movie is we want to be accurate to the process of science, if right. that makes sense, yeah, to makes the sense. way scientists think and the way scientists talk. And, you know, science gets outdated, too. Like, <laughs> right. there's stuff in the movie. I'm positive there's stuff in this movie that we're all taking as fact right now. Right. But 10 years from now, people are going to look back and go, you know, we've learned more since then, and that would be different. And and that's just what you know going mm-hmm. into it. So I don't, I don't really care. I, I think it's important that we sort of, show this is how these scientists are approaching these problems right now. And that's kind of the soul of the movie for me. Now, I think Andy might give you a different answer. I think Andy would say the science has to be absolutely 100% accurate. And I think that's why this collaboration worked really well, because between the two of us, I think we found this balance um, of what we care about in the script. And, and we both knew, you know, the storm couldn't happen, but we didn't care because you need, a, you need sort of a catastrophic event to kick this into gear and we debated other catastrophic events, and this one just felt right. Part of it was, and Ridley felt like, no, I can make this film look good, which is a key part of this. Like, we needed it. Right. You know, you need it to, to play on a visceral level as well. And so you just sort of accept, like, all right, there's going to be things that aren't, aren't 100% right. And sometimes there's a weird movie science, too, that you, you obey just because it, to do the opposite feels weird, too. Like, it, you know, if, if you've ever heard a real gunshot, it sounds entirely different than a movie gunshot. But if you put a real gunshot in a movie, it sounds like it's a fake gunshot because right. we're so accustomed to it. So you're sort of trying to find that balance and walk that line. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff that I would screw up had to do with how long things would take, communication would take between Earth and Mars and how you handle that how you handle the round-trip communication times that you need to send just something as simple as a photograph uh, on, the, on Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. That took a lot of uh, – both uh, Ridley and I getting our heads around how difficult that is because you want it to be easy. You want them to just text message each yeah. other, but they can't. You know, like they, it doesn't work that way. So a lot of times we would write that in, and then Andy would say, no, that's much harder, and we would sort of fix it. And, and we found that sort of – the challenges of communications actually worked better for drama anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it just made it made him seem more isolated, um, which which worked to our advantage. Yeah, and it made him seem even smarter when he's trying to figure out the uh, the camera and uh, the circular. I don't even know how to describe it because I don't even know the scientific term where uh, he he doesn't have enough room in the circular turn radius right. of the, the camera to have the whole alphabet, so he has to come up with yeah, a different way. I mean, right. Yeah, so he has to come up with a different way to communicate, which is just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm not even brilliant enough to explain uh, <laughs> the scene, but anyway. Um, but I think, again, that you're right. I think it added to the, the drama and, and uh, the character. Um, 
we've talked about the humor, talked about the science. Both uh, are well documented about how great the film is with that and how great a job you guys did with that. Um, and the film could have been super tech heavy and it could have been a big time sci-fi dramatic action thriller. And it, it, it was both of those things. But the one thing I noticed, it was also really an amazing human story. And I'm not talking about just talking about, although I am sort of talking about it, but I'm not just talking about the power of the human spirit, because obviously Mark Watney, Matt Damon's character, has an indomitable will, uh, getting up and persevering after, you know, every obstacle and disappointment, you know, just with his sheer determination. Um, but I'm also talking about something that I, I, I felt was the, the message of the humanity in the film. And I remember the conversation between Jeff Daniels and Sean Bean, where uh, Jeff Daniels says, it's bigger than one person. And he's talking about NASA and the space program as a whole, whereas if this mission goes awry, it could really cause damage to NASA and the entire space program. And Sean Bean says, no, it's not. And it reminded me of a line in Schindler's List where uh, uh, Ben Kingsley says, whoever saves one life saves the world. And I think mm. you did a great job of bringing that humanity into an otherwise brainy and adrenaline-riddled film. Um and I know it's all about the characters, but perhaps maybe you can talk about the themes in the film. What kind of message were you trying to get across to the audience, and how did you ensure that you were able to do it with all of everything else going on? Yeah, it, it's it's one it's it's what I always look for when when debating whether or not I'm going to write something or take on a project. Mm -hmm. I don't really care about plot at the end of the day. Mm. I think it's I think it's like anything; it's a tool and it's useful. Right. But it's not why I do this, and so I, you know. For me, it's always about what's the soul of the movie and trying to find something that resonates. And the trick is you can't, you can't always intellectualize. I tend to intellectualize these things after I've written them right. or after the movie's been made. I think of, you know, when, when I look back at the movie and I try to question, you know, what was it, what was its pull for me personally? Mm -hmm. I've always been interested in the idea of failure. One of the best things that's, that's ever happened to me um, early in my career on Buffy I had to write a script in two days and I was, you know, frantically struggling to get the script done and I knew it wasn't good. Like I knew hmm. I needed more time and I just started panicking and <laughs> I called Joss and I said, I can't do this, man. I can't. I'm flaming out for you. And he said, he was very calm and he said, listen, dude, you might fail. You might fail right now. It's okay. It's okay to fail when you're an artist. It, it just means you're trying and we'll, we will figure it out. I know you're a great writer. Like he gave me you know, this sort of pep talk and he said, don't be afraid to fail. It's okay. And it, it was the best thing I, I needed to hear. And when, when I started reading the Martian, I, it, it, this idea of failure and failure, not being a negative thing and being mm -hmm. a positive thing. And the way that ties into science, you know, science is about failure. It's about right. we try something that we, we don't understand what this is. We're searching in the dark we try something, it doesn't, you know, nine times out of ten, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then that one time, and if you treat those as just setbacks, you'll never get anything done. But, but that one time, you'll get a little further. And I became obsessed with the idea that that is a great metaphor for life. You know, wow. the scientific process is a metaphor for life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, and I, I think the movie is complicated, and, and it, has, it has a couple of themes that, that I think people are, are responding to. And to some extent, I just leave this up to audiences to tell me what it what's working for them. But nice. for me, I see it as this is, you know, the, the scientific process is a, is a metaphor for life and the way um, that all of the people in the movie are sort of holding to that. They're all just struggling to figure it out and they're screwing up. 
and yet they keep going. You know, like that really resonated with me, mm-hmm. and I tried to structure the entire movie around that theme. Right. Um, and before we move on, I just wanted to say I've never met Joss Whedon. I just hear amazing things about him. He's obviously brilliant, but I, I just I love hearing stories about Joss Whedon because he seems like such an amazing person, and he's a great writer. Obviously, he's brilliant, but. Um, anyway, back back on track. Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He, look, he is the great influence of my career, both professionally and personally. Uh, I hear that I a lot. And that's amazing. Where I am without him. That's really amazing. Um, now, directing. You directed the really, really cool Cabin in the Woods. Um, now, how does being a writer and director affect your writing process and how you handle your relationship with the director when you're not directing it? when you're just the writer, uh, in this case, just when you, when you wrote the script, um, and how you handle the relationship with the director, um, in this case, Ridley Scott. Yeah, it's funny. I remember right before I started, went off to direct Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. I had a lovely meeting with uh, Guillermo del Toro, sort of picking his brain on how to direct. <laughs> and one of the last things he said to me as I was walking out the door, he sort of laughed. He said, well, listen, the one thing I can promise you um, is that directing a movie will make you a better writer. And he was, he was very, he was 100% right because you really understand what a director, what a filmmaker needs better once you go through it. And I think the way it's changed me is that, uh, I've, uh, A, I, I write a lot less dialogue because I feel like you can tell the story much, uh, you know, you re- once you, you're behind the camera, you understand what a visual medium mm-hmm. this is and you find ways to tell um, the story without dialogue. If you look at the first, uh, I would say, 20 minutes or so of The Martian, so much of it is told without dialogue, mm-hmm. even though Matt has the occasional voiceover. A lot of it is just visual. Like, I'm just writing shots in the movie. Right. Um, and that would not, if I had written that script five years ago, I would not be doing it that way, without question. Mm. And then the other thing that happens is you learn to listen to directors better. I think when I was a younger man, before I had directed, I was, I was petulant. I was the petulant writer. That said, well, I'm the writer. You you're, do it this way. And then when a director would raise an objection... I would argue. Hmm. Um, and whereas now you understand that directors aren't being petulant. They, they, they understand they've got to see it. And they've got to know how to shoot it. And so you, you learn to listen. I think this time around I was much better. I'm so great. I think part of the reason this collaboration with Ridley went so well is I knew when he, when he, I knew when not to fight. I knew when to fight and when not to fight because I had now done it. And I could hear him his voice when he wasn't understanding or didn't care about a scene. And I, I've learned that if if a director doesn't care, it's not going to be good. So right. go ahead and cut it. You know, like yeah. just go ahead and cut it. It's okay because the job's too hard than than to than to try to force that through the system. And just trust that you're working with someone that is going to give you a great movie. And that's what I look. That that's the side that made it easy because when you've got Ridley, you you just trust. Like okay, uh, as long as he sees it. Uh, it's going to work. So I'm just here to support him. Right. That segues nicely. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask what it was like working with Ridley on, on the Martian. Uh, do you have any, are there any stories or anecdotes that are, you could share that? Uh, yeah, it was a joy. I think, I don't know. I, I guess I sort of grew up sort of, you know, I would read magazines and you see Ridley, you know, looking like a general on the set and you sort of <laughs> have this image in your head of this sort of, you know, uh, gruff British general, mm-hmm. and and he can be that for sure when he needs to be. But he's also the warmest, funniest, um, just loveliest individual I've encountered in this business. And and I think one of the things that I don't, 
I don't, it certainly wasn't true for me. I didn't really understand this until I worked with him. But now I can point to it. When people say, what's Ridley like? I just point at the Martian and go, that's his personality. The sort of warmth of the movie is the warmth of Ridley. Like that, it, it, you know, I think I watch the movie now and I look at the way the characters interact. That's how Ridley's crew interacts with mm-hmm. him. <laughs> you know, right. it's very much, you know, Ridley is, is Matt Damon in this analogy and everyone else is just there trying to help him. And they all make jokes with each other, and they're, right. and they're all, you know, it's this warm, beautiful set. It's what you want movie sets to be like, um, talented people who care about each other, and that all comes down from the top. So if uh, Ridley is, is Watney, then who's, who's the Martinez? <laughs> okay, this will be fun. Let me think about this. Um, probably his editor, Pietro. Okay. His editor has that relationship with him um, where they can really break each other's balls. But right. uh, but they are they are as close as you know as I've seen it. Pietro is really the secret weapon of the Martian for yes. sure. And what are you most proud of with the Martian and how it turned out? I think you know it's a great question. I think I'm most proud that we didn't that we were able to get the soul of Andy Weir's book onto the screen. And that's not that sounds sort of um, it sounds like it should be easy, but it is not. You know, right. it is not easy to get. To, to get a dense book about scientific experiments uh, that's going to cost a hundred million dollars. That that in this day and age, you know, someone told me a stat yesterday. You know, eight eight movies have made up about half of the box office this year. Uh, seven of those eight are sequels. One of them <laughs> is The Martian, and right. it's like that's that's impossible to do. And I think we did it because we just believed. You know, like it was just a group of us saying. We believe this can connect. Um, let's not compromise it. And that was really hard. There were times where it got really hard, and you, you start to second guess yourself. You start to second guess, what am I doing? Should we, you know, are we making a mistake here? Should we dumb this thing down? Mm-hmm. Should we just make it a, a popcorn movie, as they call it? And, and I felt like we all held the line, and um, and it, it was nice to see it connect because of that. Great. Um, now, before we let you go, uh, I've got a rapid-fire section, which is just three quick questions. Um, the first being, a day on Mars is approximately 37 minutes longer than on Earth. What would you do with 37 extra minutes a day? <laughs> uh, gut reaction, I would sleep. Nice. It's always good to have, get a little extra sleep, yep. especially for a writer. That can't hurt. <laughs> um, you're recruited for a manned mission to Mars. Which five people in your life would you take with you and why? Oh, great question. Um, I'd take my wife. Um, because I can't do anything without her. Right. Uh, I would take my father because it's good to have a doctor, oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. And then uh, two more astronauts because we don't know what the hell we're doing. <laughs> so I, I, would, I would call some of the astronauts that we met over the course of making this movie and say, please come with us and keep us alive. Um, that's uh, four of five. You got one more because there's six people. Uh, President Obama. How about that? Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, sure. He liked the Martian. I read that he liked the Martian, so... Maybe he'd uh, he'd enjoy his time. There you go. And lastly, what is your favorite disco song? Oh God, great question. Um, I think it's uh, "Don't Leave Me This Way." Um, there's something it's it it's uh, it's because it's got both. It's got the melancholy. It's a very melancholy theme, but it's got the vibrant joy of disco. So it it, nice. it sort of walks that line between. Um, sadness and optimism and i you know i obviously i i respond to that over and over uh in in art 
Cool. Uh, do you use social media, Drew? If so, I do not. Perfect. I am a bit of a luddite when you, it comes to this. You are a I'm barely writer. able to handle my own email. I'm sure you got better things to do than be on Twitter anyway. Um, well, I don't know. I, I you know I, I'm sure it, it serves its purpose, but I've sort of found that I you know it it affects my writing to to overthink these things too much, and right. it's better to just sort of work in my own quiet bubble. <laughs> it's probably smart. Um, and for those of you listening who haven't seen The Martian yet, you should definitely do so. It's still in theaters and uh, coming to DVD on, I think, January 12th. And if you have a screener, do yourself a favor and watch it. It's really fantastic. I really can't praise it highly enough. I do think you guys did a terrific job. Um, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Drew. It was great chatting with you. Kevin, this was a joy. Thank you so much. Uh, and for the latest updates on recently released and upcoming interviews and features, you can follow us on Twitter at Scripts and you can find us on Facebook and Google+, Plus, and of course on our website, scriptsandscribes.com. Happy holidays to all of you, and have a safe and wonderful New Year's. We'll catch you in 2016, and thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs>